It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. So I I take a week off to go down and hang out with my favorite mouse down in Orlando. And Bo, there's already comments trying to put me out to pasture, it looks like. <laughs> I don't know about all that now. It, uh, we missed you. We all, I think I can speak on behalf of the entire Tightwad Nation and say, we missed you while you were gone. Well, guys, if you don't know, go check out last week's show. Bo did a really good job talking about retirement success and really how to kind of take yourself there. I, I, I've personally listened to the show. I thought it was really, really good. So, Bo, I appreciate you kind of it, you know, taking... The, the the helm of things and making sure we kept everything working. I, I do want to talk to you. You guys, by the way, introing everything, this is the Money Guy Show. You can go check us out at money-guy.com. Um, you can also write the show. That's Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy.com. You can also write Bo, B-O, at money-guy.com. Um, I also want to thank the University of Georgia specifically, you know, we got to talk to um, the financial planning majors yesterday. Had a great trip. We'll kind of add a little bit because there were some antics that occurred that um, tie perfectly into today's topic, and we'll get into that in a second. Um, but we've got a good one today, and I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to my trusted co-host, Mr. Bo Hansen, because he's the one that kind of came up with this show topic. Yeah, so what's a little unique is a lot of times people say, hey, guys, where do y'all come up with the topics for the shows? And we've kind of told you either what's going on in our lives, what's going on with clients, or even listener emails. Well, this one, uh, Brian got back into town. He said, hey, what'd you talk about last week? And I told him we went and listened to the show, and I said, but guess what? I've got next week's show topic figured out. Uh, because as you guys know, the, the way that we've been able to be so successful over the years is all the love you have shown us out there um, on iTunes leaving comments. And so, you know, by and large, we've received a ton of very positive feedback out on iTunes, and we are so, so grateful for that. But every now and then, we get a negative comment. And let, let me go ahead and qualify that. We, we got a comment a few weeks ago, and it wasn't really that negative. It was a three-star out of five-star, but we, you know, we try to hold ourselves to a higher standard, and we like to see five-star. So, we got this negative comment, and I'll kind of share share it with you guys, and then I'll get back on topic, and you'll see why that's so so on point. But it says, uh, you know, they talk about themselves and their friends way too much. Seems a bit disingenuous, especially when it's two guys going back and forth endorsing each other. I'm sure there are some useful tips nestled in the podcast, but it takes too long to get to the meat of that, and I feel like I'm sitting through a sales pitch the whole time. Um, so obviously not everyone feels that way, uh, or else we'd have more comments. But we're so sorry that we made you feel that way uh, if you're listening to this show. And so it kind of got me thinking, you know, for this person, we missed it. Yeah. And we think it's important that, you know, even though we are these financial guys and we make so many, what I would like to say are good financial decisions, and we try to help people make really good financial decisions by going beyond common sense, every now and then we miss the mark. And we kind of learn from our misses as we go. So I said, Brian, we need to do our next show next week on the money guy misses. And let's kind of walk through and talk about some financial decisions that we've made in the past that maybe haven't been perfect, or maybe that you know looked one way but weren't. And what are some mistakes we've made that we can share with our listeners so that they can learn from those mistakes as well as not make them themselves? What I thought was interesting in show prep was you, you sure did have no problem coming up with all my my, my misses <laughs> that I've made financially over over the time you've known me, and even some even before then. Um, I will tell you one of the things I thought was interesting. We went to Georgia yesterday. We, we've got a good thing going on here at Preston and Cleveland. That's the day job with the fee and financial planning firm. We've grown enough that we're bringing on an additional associate. So we've been doing the interview process. We knew we were going to Georgia to speak to the financial planning majors. And it was one of those things while we were there, we said, let's see if we can bring another bulldog into the firm. And we, we interviewed three really good candidates. Well, in conversation this morning, I was driving back. I had meetings all morning, and I was driving back to the office. I called Bo, and I said, hey, I've noticed we haven't gotten any emails. Have you seen anything from any of the candidates, you know, to, to just see if they followed up with us? And as soon as I got off the phone call with Bo, I checked my email, and there was an email from one of the, the candidates. <laughs> and I was so impressed, I hit forward and um, said, boom, exclamation point, Ask and you shall receive. Because he wanted me, we had just got done talking about it. He wanted me to see this person's email. He's very happy that it had come through. So then we get to the office and Bo tells me the very new information. You could tell it was brand new. He had not seen my email. He goes, did you see the email from you know, the candidate that we interviewed? And I said, hit refresh on your, on your email. 
hit refresh two or three times. I said, where's my email that I forwarded you? I got one too. <laughs> Went and pulled it up. I had emailed, I'd hit reply instead of forward <laughs> like an idiot. So I, I, I turned a shade of red that I know you guys don't get the visual to see. But I, I called and worked it out, and I feel so embarrassed. So if the, any of the candidates from yesterday are listening to the show, you can kind of have a story to see how this, how unique this situation was. Because when I told Brian, I was like, Brian, holy cow, look at what you've done. This person essentially sent an email saying, you know, Mr. Preston, thank you so much for the interview. I really enjoyed it. I'd love to have the job. And immediately they get a reply back that says, boom, ask and you shall receive. I was like, Brian, you just hired this person. You need to make sure they know what's going on. A little embarrassing. So <laughs> not my greatest technology moment. But I will tell you, it ties in perfectly today because we're going to jump right into these uh really some of the best ways to learn. I know when I've made mistakes, this is not the first technology mistake I've made. And I know when I was an early associate into the financial planning world, anytime I made a mistake, that was one of my best learning moments because I'm one of those personalities. Mistakes drive me crazy. And if I'm personally the creator of the mistake, I want to do everything to make sure I don't repeat that mistake again in the future. So, what, what I plan on we'll do here, Bo, is let's just kind of go through. Uh, maybe I'll do one or two, and then we'll jump onto okay. your list. The first one I had, and this is one that I got re-educated by the collapse of 2008. For years, if you go back to 2006 when I started doing this show, you will hear me talk about my financial situation. I've always been a hyper-saver where I save at least 20% of my income. Um, but one of the things I've always held off on until – 2008 was I didn't have a lot of cash reserves. And the reason was I had done such a good job with purchasing my house in the right area. I had done a good job of haggling with the the builder because I had a custom built house with the, the real estate agent that I had, according to all the banks and the appraisal reports, I had over $150,000 of equity in my house. So when you, at the time, pre-2008, when you have $150,000 plus of equity, Everybody in the world back then was throwing money at you. Hey, no cost. We'll give you a home equity line. That way you have access to that $150,000. So I said, you know, that's a great deal. If I can get prime minus three quarters, prime minus a half. I mean, there's all these deals were pretty normal back then. I said, let's do it, especially if there's no cost. So I, I set up a home equity line and then I didn't keep cash reserves because if there was ever a need, a quarter that money got tight, I could go transfer, you know, a few thousand bucks. Mm Get my distribution payments from the company, pay back that line of credit. Right. No harm, no foul. Who needs, you know, a cash reserves when I got one hundred and fifty thousand? That's more than three to six months worth of wages at the time. Right. So then two thousand eight happens, and you guys actually gave me a heads up, and I want to thank my listeners for giving me a heads up because you started emailing me letters that you had gotten from your banks, from the Bank of America's, the Wells Fargo's, where they were letting you know. Hey, by the way, we reevaluated your fair market value of your house. You don't have equity, so we're exercising provision, blah, 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 that you no longer <laughs> get access to your home equity line. We're shutting it down at this point, essentially, where you you owe what you owe, but if you want to pull any more, not going to happen. Right. So you guys educated me on that by forwarding me those notices. So I quickly, fortunately, I didn't get that. I did get that letter, by the way, but I, I had enough. I had three to four months before I got my own personal letter that I, I, I started throwing money in the bank. I mean, and that's the that's one of the first things I learned. Cash, as much as it's a, a, a sucker's bet right now with how much cash pays, because cash really is trash on what it's yielding. I mean, even the good, high-yielding money markets – that you see out there from the FDIC internet banks typically are not paying more than 0.85%. Right. And that you've got the good one if you mm-hmm. get 0.85. A lot of them around 0.55 and so forth. But nothing helps you sleep better than knowing that you have emergency reserves in the bank. And I think it's interesting. You know, you saw it specifically with the home prices, but we're seeing a lot of it now even from clients who say, hey, I've got all this cash, but it's not doing anything. Should right. I be in that? You know, markets are doing some crazy things. We've had a lot of really good performance in 2013. Should I start employing some of that cash? And our answer is, unfortunately, you know, no. Emergency reserves are there for a reason. And, yeah, there might be other areas where you could go grab some yield, but that's not the purpose of those assets. They need to be liquid, they need to be safe, and they need to be accessible. And emergency reserves are just reserves. Remember, if you have something big coming up, like a car purchase, uh, a child that's entering college, a house down payment, an engagement ring that you're buying for a significant other, 
if anything you need within the next four to five years, you don't want it in the marketplace. And I'm not talking about just the stock marketplace. You don't want it in the bond marketplace. You want it in pretty much liquid capital because uh, there's you, you just don't want to put money that you know you're going to need into some type of asset class that could have some fluctuations. If you can be a long-term investor and wait five years, then yes, it's okay to start doing some things with those those assets to see if we can maximize returns and get you a little bit extra bump. But it doesn't make sense to take that risk if you don't need to. Um, the second thing I had on my list, and then Bo, I'm going to let you take one, um, is I did a separate account management set up for my father. And ex- I, explain what that, what an SMA is. Yeah, what, what happened was, and this is probably in the first three years that I was managing money. This is the 1990s. You know, remember my, God bless the 1990s. Don't you wish we could, you know, <laughs> Bo, you weren't managing money then. You were probably paying with Tonka trucks or something, but it was, it was so fun back then from a management standpoint is that everything made money. I mean, and it wasn't making just money. It was making stupid money, like 20, 30%. I mean, there were years your international funds might make, actually, International funds could make 50%. Some of your infra, if you were doing sector funds like technology, you right. could make 100% in one year. I mean, it was stupid money. It was really silly. It's, it's kind of funny that we didn't notice that this was crazy. Well, all during this excitement, a lot of products and other things were being sold out there. And, and what would happen is I was a, a registered investment. I mean, I was a registered rep. This is back when I worked on the commission side of things is that we had, you know, you get these people come in and give you presentations about the way they do business and things you ought to consider doing with your clients. And one of them, and I'm not going to give their name because I don't even know if they're in business anymore, but they were a separate account manager, meaning that you give them baskets of money. Like the minimum on this one was $100,000. And once you give them this minimum of $100,000, they are hoping you give them a million dollars, at least a half a million, but you can get in access to a hundred with $100,000. They're going to assign you a manager. That instead of buying a mutual fund or, or, or an exchange traded fund, an ETF, you're going to go buy a, a manager who's going to individually go out there and buy you stocks. He's physically going to buy you stocks. Mm-hmm. And that sounds so custom. It sounds sexy. Right. Because you're thinking, this is what the rich guys. I've think. got my own, my own manager. Yeah, I got a guy. He's picking me some stocks. You know, that's, that's kind of, that's the sexiness of it. And that's what, you know, that goes back to the whole cocktail party thing is that you want to be able to have those stories to tell friends that, Hey, I got this stock. It's tearing it up out there. Well, the problem here. So in theory, it sounds really cool, but here's the problem I had with it. And this is, and I'm going to lead into maybe I'll do three bow yeah, because I go think ahead. the third one, but what I realized, so. Me being three years into the industry, my father had changed positions and changed jobs. I'll just tell you there had been a downsizing. He'd gone from management to now he was back in an entry-level sales position. It was really a traumatic thing when I was a kid and, and in a young adult as I was entering you know, my own workforce. So he had some rollover money from that transaction when he got you know, reshuffled into right. the workforce. And it, it was it was not a ton of money because my parents, I think I've shared with you guys, come from very humble beginnings. But it was over $100,000. You know, here, my father had been working for years. He had over $100,000 in his IRA, but it wasn't much over that. So I said, you know what? If it's good enough for the rich guys, it's good enough for my dad. Right. So I'm going to put my dad in this thing. So I signed my father up for this separate account management deal and... It was a disaster. And let me tell you why it was a disaster. And I'm not talking bad. I mean, there probably are some people that can, I've seen it. There are some trust funds and some other private placements that I've seen them and my tongue kind of hangs out because there are some really good separate account managers, but they're not all created equally. And I can tell you the one we had was a dog because what happened was they don't treat you as custom as they told you they were going to treat you custom. What they do is they have essentially model baskets of, of stocks that they're going to buy. And then when you give them a hundred thousand, they have a, you know, essentially programs or, or electronic means where they go and they divvy it up where they'll give you $5 of this defensive stock, five, I mean, five shares of this defensive stock, five shares of this technology stock, five shares of this blue chip stock go through. And you'd really, you own a bunch of little stuff, right? I mean, it, it, they're big companies, but you own five shares. So they're not even clean hundred, hundred share lots. Right. And, I started getting called from my father, Brian. This is back when my father was still alive, which is kind of sentimental. But my my dad would call me up and be like, "Dad," he'd be like, "Brian, I got I got in the mail today, all these annual reports. I got I got this new 
Now they're asking me to vote. There's this proxy that came in. Brian, here's another trade confirmation coming in on this. Brian, why am I getting 20 pieces of mail every day on all these? What, what have you done? You know, that's, that's kind of where my father was going with. And then the performance was so convoluted that it was hard to tell how good we were doing because all those sales literature had all this great historical data. But I realized that's kind of hard to tell when you're right. buying an individual basket. And then here's the really get you on the back way out is that when we decided this was not a good idea, I should, I, I jumped the gun. I got my father in a product that was inappropriate because I was just green behind the ears. I didn't know what I was doing with managing money at the time. I decided I want to get him out. Well, here's where they get you. You've now got 60 to 70 different stocks mm-hmm. that you own. Guess what happens when you're ready to get out of those things? Because you say, I want to pull the plug on this. So you, you buy a mutual fund and you get mad at the manager. Or the manager retires and the manager goes and starts a hedge fund. What do you do to get out of that mutual fund? You go and you see what you paid for it. You go see what it's worth right now and you figure out, is there a capital gain in there? Do I need to pay taxes on that? Am I willing to pay taxes on that? Or if I've got a loss, you know, do I have everything tracked down? And you sell it. And that's it. Transaction's done. Here's what happens with stocks. When you own 70 stocks, you have to say, wait a minute. This is, now, this is before the 895 trade. This is back in the 90s where everybody's getting money, you know, rich off of their stock trades. So why do you care how much you're paying in ticket charges? Because, you know, so a a transaction might be 30 bucks, 40 bucks, 50 bucks to trade this stock to sell five shares. I mean, it was really ridiculous. So my father had thousands of dollars of transaction fees if I wanted to get him out of it. It, it was a disaster. Mm-hmm. And, and, and for me, the son, who's supposed to be, you know, the, the son that's gone yeah. and gotten college educated, the expert in fi- finance, I mean, I was embarrassed because I got my father completely in a bad product. Um, it was not appropriate for him. It was way too sophisticated and not even good. I will tell you, it didn't fit where he needed to be. Um, it was a learning experience. Yeah. And that kind of, and I, but we're going to transition you, but that leads right into the next piece of advice I was going to give. And, and I fell prey to this in the beginning, but it ties into what I did for my father. So what it sounds like, for, and this probably isn't a great, you know, for the person that said we're, we're great salesmen, I don't think telling all your misses is probably <laughs> the best way to try to win somebody over because anybody who wanted to be a client back when I first started managing money, they're like, God, that couldn't have been a winning endeavor at that time. But when I first, I, I would tell you one of the core things that you've got to make sure when you hire any investment person, and I've learned this, you've got to ask them what their core investment philosophy is. Mm-hmm. Ask them that question. Say, what is your core investment philosophy? Give me what makes you tick on how you manage, manage money. Because if you don't have a core investment philosophy, you'll believe anything and right. you'll buy anything. And that's what I, you know, I had as my next tip. You don't, Start investing money until you have some core philosophy on how you believe and manage money. And I'm going to tell you about chasing the hot dot, and then I'm going to tell you our core investment philosophy so you can say, you know, see that I, I, we actually practice what we, we, we preach. But chasing the hot dot, another mistake I made, because I didn't have a core investment belief at the time, as I told you, I was willing to buy something somebody came and sold me at the time for my clients. I was also willing to go and put them in things that I don't think now looking back historically were not good investments. I bought a lot, including myself. I personally bought a lot of those internet funds back in the 90s. And I did so well in it. I remember I had IRAs. Remember, Roth IRAs came out 98? Something like that, right around there. Might have been 98. I'm doing that off memory. If I'm wrong by the year, you know, add a year, take a year, somewhere in there. You could only do $2,000 a year at the time. So I put $2,000 in a Roth IRA. I bought the internet fund. I don't even remember what the symbol was, but within three months, my $2,000 was worth $4,000. That's sick. I mean, you should not double your money in three months, especially off a mutual fund. So I told all my friends how brilliant I was. <laughs> my friends won the, in the internet fund. So several of them invested their $2,000 into the internet fund. And it turned into three thousand. So you can imagine my two thousand actually got up to close to six thousand dollars. It was it was sick. I mean, it was crazy. I thought I was master of the universe. I mean, I really did. I was like, man, if this is what it takes to manage money, I have got this all day long. You know, I'm gonna be rich at this game. Well, you know the rest of the story. Two thousand hit. Look out below. And every all every bit of that money that was made 
was pretty much lost. I think I ended up selling. Now, I didn't wait until the very bottom, but I did end up that $2,000 turned into $1,000. Right. That, well, I should say that $6,000 turned into $1,000 because I, I just didn't take my gains and I didn't realize that I was lucky. And but, so all of these negative experiences helped you kind of form this investment philosophy that now we share. Yeah. And so here's our core philo- investment philosophy now is I've realized, believe me, this is, that's why be careful when you hire somebody who doesn't have some experience when you're managing money. And I, I think a lot of you guys who are do it, very successful do-it-yourselfers, you probably can look back at your own life and go, man, there is a skill set. Is, you know, in, in addition to just controlling your emotions and un- understanding the analytics, there is a skill set to managing money. My core philosophy is that when things are good, remember, when things are good, everybody makes money. When things are good, I want you to get two-thirds to three-quarters of the good stuff. You don't notice I didn't say 100%. You know, that's a fallacy. A lot of it, if somebody tells you they're going to beat the market every year, be careful because I'm telling you as an investment manager, I don't try to get the market every year because if you try to get the market or better than the market, you're taking more risk than the market because remember that whole concept of risk and reward. The more risk you take, the more reward you're seeking. So that's why I say during good times, you want two-thirds or three-quarters of the good stuff. You want to make what the market makes to a large degree by two-thirds or three-quarters. But when things are tough, and that's when you can really tell how your good your advisor is. Because when things are bad, that's when the, essentially the tide goes out or comes back, you know, goes out and you get to see who's naked in the water. I mean, it's warm, but stealing, you know, and paraphrasing a Warren Buffett saying, when the, when the tide rolls back out, you do get to see who's naked. And that's when things look out below once again. If they don't have a core philosophy, you will lose a lot of money. My core belief is I only want you to have a third to a half of that downside potential. And what we can show you is certainly if you look at certain periods in time, if you would have just invested in index, you'd have done it fine, but man, you would have had a roller coaster ride. What we like to show is that taking that conservative approach through volatile times, you'll actually come out ahead by limiting your downside, but capturing a good bit of the upside, and you won't have all the heartburn. Because a lot of what we do is behavioral, not just strictly numbers. And so part of it is you have to kind of manage those things. It's so so interesting here you hearing you talk about the mistakes you made when you first started because that one of the ones that I had listed is you know when I was in college in my very first uh, internship I worked with a major insurance company um, and I did a lot of good work I sold a lot of term insurance and I made a lot of money over the summer that I did that but then there was this stuff called whole life and holy cow you can make a lot of money when you sold this stuff called whole life. And I don't think I was ever malicious about it, and I don't think I ever tried to take advantage of anyone. And I'm not saying whole life has its purpose in certain scenarios, but when I was sitting down and talking with a 22-year-old college student who's asking me, hey, I want to start saving money. What do you think is a good thing for me to start saving money in? I really, at the time, believed whole life insurance. You know, you get a death benefit, and it builds this cash value, and it has these dividends. You know, in hindsight, looking back, that probably wasn't the most prudent decision uh, to recommend to them. And so, you know, I sold some some life insurance like that. And I think what it did for me is it allowed me to realize, well, I, I probably don't know this industry well enough to be making these calls. So what I have is one of the big misses that I have is if, if you're new to something, give yourself some time to become an expert or to at least become well, you know, uh, at least build a base of knowledge before you start considering yourself to be an expert. And I mean, I think, you know, in the in the presentation yesterday, we talked about the book Outliers. It talks about essentially... You need 10,000 hours of anything to become an expert at it. It takes 10,000 hours to do that. So if you think about a full working year, in any profession, you need to work for five years at something before you become an expert. And here I was, you know, I had taken a few investment courses and a few financial planning courses, and I was out there telling people how to build their retirement, you know, using life insurance. Um, so I think, think that's, that's a little unique. And then another one, you know, you mentioned chasing the hot dot. I learned very early on, um, that I'm not as smart as I think I am. Uh, two of the things that is, I took my very first investments course, and uh, I saw a headline one day, and it was it was Mattel, the toy maker. There was a big recall. Like, I think it was a bad recall. Like, some kids got really sick off some parts that were in the toys. I think, uh, now, just going off memory, and I, you and I did not talk about this part of it, right. but I think that they, they it was manufactured in China. Some of the toys were manufactured in China. The paint had a lead yeah, in it. So, exactly. The paint had a lead in it, and there was a big recall. So me, you know, I just learned this concept about being a contrarian, right? So I saw this as a top story on the news, and I thought, you know what? Mattel shares are getting really beat up. I'm going to go buy some. 
Well, and you know, Mattel may be a fine company, but I didn't look into the into the income statement, the balance sheet. All I did was say, "Oh wow, this company has something bad happen. Stock prices down. Let me go buy it. That's going to be a solid momentum you know, investing." That's exactly what it was. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, I kind of learned my lesson. I took you know a couple hundred, couple thousand bucks, whatever it was, and I lost it pretty pretty darn quick to where to a point where I couldn't build it back. And then the other thing is, I thought I was so smart because I remember when Sirius Satellite Radio was talking about combining with XM. I remember convincing myself that, that when these two companies come together, they're going to have a monopoly on the market. And man, this stuff is going to take off. So uh, I bought some like in 2006, 2007, whenever it was. Well, it took like four years for those companies to finally come together. All these legal battles, all this arbitration. They finally came together and nothing happened. Nothing ever, ever happened. Again, didn't look at the income statement, didn't look at the balance sheet, knew nothing about the fundamentals of the business I just thought that since I had read a CNN top story or Yahoo top story, I had it all figured out. Um, so I think I think the takeaway I had was know what you know and know what you don't know. Yeah. Know when you still have a little bit more to learn about whatever the topic is you're getting into. And I think that ties in. You know, I had one on here, and I've gotten caught up in this a little bit, but it's more or less something more generalized advice I try to give to clients that come to us who are who have what they call play accounts that they they. When you gamble but call it investing, <laughs> it's not really investing. And what I'm talking about there is I'm talking about not just stock picking. I'm talking about playing with the options and futures and other things that you can get into currency trading. There are some things you can do. Yeah, they're investing, believe me. But a lot of people, if you're you – know, back to the old rounders quote, if you're sitting at the table and you don't know who the sharks are, you're, or, or you don't know who the minnow is or the, or the right. sucker is. It's you. It's you. <laughs> I mean, I know I screwed that quote. I'm so bad at quotes, but it, that really is, you know, Rounders the movie on uh-huh. poker. If you, if you can't figure out who the sucker is or who the mark is, it's you, by That's the way, right. when you, when you sit down with a, with a bunch of sharks. And it's kind of that way with some of these products that are so risky, but they have tremendous. I mean, I even, during the heat of the market back in the 90s, you know, you probably see the gloss over as I'm looking out the window because it's just so fun. I, I remember I was at a grocery store once and I, I had something under my windshield wiper and I looked and there was a, a, like a website or a phone number where it's talking about how you can make a thousand percent return. Awesome. And penny stocks it, or something? It, well, it was options. Oh, they okay. were talking about some options crazy trading strategy where if you bought their software, it would help you. But Here's the problem with options, and I've I've invested with options. I've used options can actually be a very useful tool. Right. I've had um, clients in the past that had very very executives that had concentrated portfolios, meaning had thousands upon thousands of shares of really good. I mean, of stocks that they that they owned. They couldn't sell it for either political reasons within the company they worked at. Or, or the environment they were in, or even they just didn't want to, but they needed some type of protection. You can create some really cool strategies with concentrated stock portfolios through options that really hedges your bets. You know, it takes a lot of that risk off the table. You can do these collar strategies. You can do really some some fun advanced stuff. That stuff gets you excited for in a nerdy, geeky type right. of way. But if you're just trying to make a bet on what's going to happen with a stock, and I'll give you an example of, of, of some I've seen. Is um, I saw a strategy once where people were betting on Apple because they thought Apple was a good company at the time. They thought big things were going. It was. They were right on about that. The second thing they thought was Netflix was overvalued because mm-hmm. Netflix. What was the price structure? Was that at? I want to say though? at that time it was like a hundred bucks a share or something right around no, I there. It was, I thought it was like one hundred eighty, two hundred dollars. I didn't a think share. it was that high. I but thought it, well, Netflix got really crazy. I mean, to the point that that. This strategy was, let's let's go bet against Netflix. Let's go long Apple, short Netflix. Yeah, so they're they're basically buying puts on um on on Netflix. on Netflix, and then they're buying the call options on Apple. And the thought was they were hedging their 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 risks there because they were betting on one and betting against another. The problem with options are, you can be right, mm-hmm. you can be absolutely right, especially like Netflix. Netflix went from. Whatever the number we can't remember right. is, um, you know, which was well over a hundred dollars a share, back down to fifty or sixty dollars uh-huh. a share. I mean, yeah. it fell by you know sixty seventy percent, I believe, um, just doing it off memory. So there was a huge fall of Netflix. But guess when it didn't happen? During, during that during that period. window of those options, the problem with options is they have a time certain period on them. 
you know, if you're, you're talking, you know, three months, six months, year, I mean, you choose when you want these options to expire. And that's what the, that their options. You're getting, you're buying the right from somebody who physically owns the shares. They're giving you the right to their shares if you're willing to pay them a premium to take the risk that they might lose their shares. Right. So that's what, that's really what options are allowing you to do. So that problem with that is that you could be fundamentally right, but the timing's completely wrong because as you can see, markets in the short term are not always driven by fundamentals. There's a lot of emotions that play in momentum investing. You're not the only guy that goes and buys the beat up stocks just for the sake of buying the beat up stocks. And, and I think you, you hit it dead on the head that there are fund managers and professional money managers out there who use these complicated strategies as a tool. But how often do we see someone's portfolio where they said, Oh yeah, by the way, I've got these Apple options. I don't want to sell them because they're doing really, really well. Right. That's not a, that's not a strategy. That, that's a guess. That's a gamble. And we're happy that you've done well, but it's not always investing it's more getting lucky you know one that i don't even have on the list bo but just something you said triggered it be careful guys if you do have because some of these clients i talk about with these concentrated portfolios and it's not just concentrated it's just having certain holdings in your portfolio that you get emotionally attached Mm -hmm. to try not to get emotionally attached to anything that you're you're owning for an investment purpose because if you're emotionally attached to something you know and i say by that is you know we have some portfolios that have sometimes they're great winners. Sometimes they really just drag us down when, when, you know, when we have to hold something for a client because they're emotionally attached to it. It, it really is troubling because it's, it, it, it's hard. When you have that emotional t- attachment, it's hard for you to differentiate a good company from a good stock. Cause you can have a great company that doesn't have a great stock just based on what the price is doing. And you can have a bad company and a bad stock. And you have to, it, you kind of have to have them line up to make it make sense. Um, so be be careful of that. Um, just kind of adding, because I know this show's already gone to 30 minutes and we even have more advice, is uh, another loss that uh, a learning experience, I should say, is vacation property, second property, you know, second home. I, I got caught up in, you know, I've shared with you guys in the past, I bought a, a, a rental property on the beach in the coast down in Florida. And, you know, it's supposed to be this great money maker for me. I bought it with a group of CPAs and other professionals. And what I found is that um, it's pretty expensive. Yep. Because what happens, I bought it for the investment. Well, we all know I bought it back in 2006. The market has done anything but be nice to me at this point. Um, we've had oil spills on the Gulf. Right. I mean, it has been a who's who of errors. And then remember, once you make over a certain amount of money, you know, around the 180 mark for a married couple, the government doesn't let you deduct losses because a lot of people try to justify certain purchases by saying, well, I'll get such a great tax benefit that it'll pay for itself. But there are situations where you don't get these tax benefits once you price yourself out of that through an, a higher income. And if you go read... Any of the Dr. Thomas Stanley books talking about the millionaire, millionaire next door or stop acting rich, act like a millionaire, those things, he will talk to you that a lot of the successful behaviors of these people that are high, very, very successful, they don't get caught up in some of these trends that, that really can take away from your, your long-term balance sheet net worth success. Um, there's the next one, the next one that I have on my list. Um, this is one you will not hear from the money guys that often because it totally flies in the face with pretty much everything that we stand for. Um, but I think it is a money mistake that I think we've both made. And, and the way we have it written here is being too cheap. <laughs> we are both certified tightwads, no, no doubt about it, about it. So much so that sometimes, what was it said? We, we cut our nose off despite our face. Yeah. You know? Um, and the example that I had on here is, you know, when I first bought my house, um, I, uh, I needed, I just don't have time because I was getting married and I had all these other things going on. Started these tests, didn't have time for the yard work. So I was going to outsource my yard work, you know, have someone come in and take care of it. But when I started pricing it, I was like, holy cow, <laughs> yard men are kind of expensive. So one day I kind of just was out, you know, at the mailbox shooting the bull with a neighbor in the neighborhood. And uh, he's like, well, you know, if you're looking for yard men, I'll do it for you. You know, prob- so we kind of, you know, spit on our hands and gave an old handshake and we decided, okay, I'm going to pay him and he's going to cut my grass. Well, apparently our, um, you know, w- what we saw as appropriate lawn care didn't line up. 
but the price was already set, you know, and, and I thought I was getting a great deal. Well, what I got was exactly what I paid for and the relationship, you know, I had to eventually come to the point where I said, hey, man, you're, you're not really doing anything to my yard and I'm still paying you. This isn't working out. I'd have been much better served to pay a professional to actually jump in there and start doing it right. And then you and I have talked about this before, Brian. I used to be notorious for going out and buying a $30 pair of work shoes that lasted me a good six weeks, wore out, and then I had to go buy another one. Well, finally, you sat me down one day and said, son, listen here, spend some money on some good shoes and they'll last you for years and years. And that's exactly what I did. And, I, and looking back, I can't believe I was so foolish to think buying a new pair every six months was the way to go. Well, just kind of elaborate so you don't, because I think there's a big difference between brands and value. Because if you read Stop Acting Rich, Start Living Like a, a Millionaire or whatever the, the new Dr. Thomas Stanley book is, he actually goes into brand-specific trends of the wealthy people. And and one grabbed me because I, I didn't even realize I'm doing some of these things. And it really kind of made me feel good that I'm doing a lot of the there, – there is a behavior for very successful people is I like Allen Edmund shoes. And Allen Edmund shoes are super expensive. But what I do is I wait. They have – I've got a connection down at the outlets. You know, the, the Allen Edmonds has outlets shopping centers where – there might be a tiny little blemish or something on a shoe, and they'll send it down there, and they really reduce the right, the, the price. Well, once or twice a year, they 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 give outstanding deals on these shoes, and they sometimes even have closeouts where you can get Allen Edmonds shoes for as cheap as ninety nine dollars. Yep. Um, now that sounds expensive when you hear ninety nine dollars, but here's the here's the catch with why you like these shoes. I, my first pair of Allen Edmonds shoes lasted. Well, I mean, I still have them. I still wear them, but I'm ready to get rid of them because they've lasted me probably seven years, six mm-hmm. years. I've resold them four times because um, I'm hard on shoes, really hard on shoes. And you can re, you can redo your shoes for 30 or 40 bucks and they're brand new again. Yep. I mean, it's, it's really amazing. So you make that $100, $125, $130 investment, but then you have that pair of shoes for years and, and, I like them. I mean, they're quality shoes. They're really good. I, I've been very brand loyal to them for, for my dress shoe needs just because I think they're, they're good quality. Now, the difference is there's a brand new pop thing, a, a song out there called Thrift Shop. You hear it on the radio. By Macklemore. Yeah, I've, I've heard it on XM radio a few times when I've been in the car. Um, if the kids are in the car, I have to turn it because it's got some <laughs> salty language in it. Um, even though they try to cover it up, you can kind of tell what, what's being said. But one of the things that did tickle me a little bit when I didn't have the kids in the car and I was listening to it was he talks about people buying $100 T-shirts and how they've been ripped off. And um, that's the truth. You know, there's a difference between value, if you're getting a good value by buying a high-quality product versus just trying to buy a brand to make yourself look good. That's what, I, what we're saying. So when we say don't be a tightwad, we are saying make sure sometimes you have to buy value. Right. You have to pay a little bit extra to get quality. That doesn't mean go buy expensive junk to get ripped off because there is a huge difference um, between those things. Uh, I, I've, I found it with jackets too. I mean, I have some brands. I'm not going to sit here and give infomercials for all the brands that I like, but there are some jackets and other gear that just works better yep. than, than others. And, and you have to pay extra for that stuff. But the thing is, I, the older I'm getting, the more I realize a lot of this stuff lasts six, seven, even 10 years. Right. I mean, it really does. So uh, you don't have to be such a tight wad that you don't get good value out of your stuff. You know, and, and I've learned that I've grown up and we're going way off. I grew up, you know, so just like I told you, my mom used to recycle soap. Right. I'm not going to go into what that means. You just have to wonder what the heck recycling soap means. Um, but my mom also, and I didn't realize this until I got to college, and really when I got married to my wife, who she showed me that washing detergents aren't all created equal <laughs> either. I'm used to this stuff that my mom used to buy at one of the big warehouse clubs, you know, and it, it, you opened it up and it looked like a bunch of sand. I mean, right. it was a powder. You Grabbed a scoop. I mean, and the container came in like a, a, a almost <laughs> where you needed a forklift to put it into the back of your car. And you wash your colors and you put your blue in, it'd come back a lighter color blue. <laughs> you put a red in, it comes back a, a, you know, almost a pinkish red. You know, it just scrubbed the heck out of your, your clothes. It was not gentle on the clothes. So clothes didn't last long. When I was a kid, whereas when I got married, my wife started using better detergents. They really are gentler on the clothes. I mean, those commercials aren't fibbing <laughs> when they tell you they, they preserve the colors right. and, and they don't beat them. I, my mom, I don't think, because whenever she keeps the kids, 
They like come, the back, come back, come a back a little faded, but you know I love my mom, and that's that God bless her because I probably wouldn't be as good with money without my parents being so tight. So I say that with love. I hope y'all know that, and I've, I've been working on her on that. We put um, boat. Did you have? Because I had one more on here, but you kind of incorporated. Did you want to talk about the stretch goals or yeah. any of these others? An- another mistake that I made along the line is, is br- one thing that Brian and I talk about a lot is we like to make stretch goals. Uh, but stretch goals kind of cut both ways. Sometimes they are fantastic and they work out and everything is great. And sometimes it might be a little too much of a stretch. And the example that I have listed down here is um, right before I entered the workforce, I was in my last semester of college. I decided I wanted to go buy my first car. You know, I was fortunate. My parents helped me buy a car when I was in high school, drove that all through college. I decided I want to go buy a first car. Um, I didn't go crazy. I bought a very nice car. It's still a car I drive today. I don't think it's, you know, a top, top of the line. But it was probably nicer than what a 19-year-old uh, in college should have bought and should have paid for. Now, it is paid for. I paid it off very quickly. But in hindsight, looking back, I probably could have saved myself maybe four, five, six grand, uh, and it would have been okay. You know, it would have worked out just fine. Uh, but that was a stretch goal, and it, it worked out. But looking back, I probably could have pumped the brakes and, and, and kicked it back a little bit. And also what it's done now is it has kind of set that precedent that probably the next car – it's gonna have to be on the same, you know, same level, or maybe even a little bit nicer. Whereas if I would have set the expectations real, real low, it makes it easier. You, you know what I mean? Um, also, I, th- I think he was alluding to guys. He's married now, <laughs> so he's got another voice that's whispering in his ear, and they they don't want to go down a step because. And I don't want to get a specific car, but. Bo does drive a decent, a, a pretty nice Acura. And I remember when he pulled up in it the first time, I was like, wow, that car is as nice as my car. What's so funny is when we did the interview, I pulled up in my the car that I had from high school. It's a truck, like right. an F-150 pull up. And Brian's like, oh, it's good old country boy. We're going to be just fine. And then when I showed up on first day of work, I was driving an Acura. Like, wow, maybe, you know, because I do like to hire, but I, I think it is what it is. I did want to close out the show, kind of hit you in really quick fashion of some things that these aren't mistakes I've necessarily or Bo has made, but I've seen, I've even had, the, I've just in the last two or three days, I've had several of these discussions from people, clients, as well as friends and, and just people I know in the community as well as listeners writing us emails of, of some mistakes, a common mistakes I see, and I just want to make sure I pass it on. It's kind of like a public service announcement to make sure you don't make these mistakes yourself. I have too many people that when I'm t- dealing with just out talking out and about that are worried more about the payment amount instead of debt. Um, I, I had somebody talking to me just very recently. I was trying to explain to them because they were talking about how their vehicle the gas was eating them alive. It was killing their budget. You know, they're thinking about trading in this truck so they could get a lower, you know, a more a, a more fuel-efficient vehicle. Right. I mean, and, and the thing is they were looking at a car that actually cost more than the truck they were driving. And and when I, and I, I pointed that out to them, they said, but my payments would be – Actually, the same actually might even be $20 cheaper a month. And Easier like, on cash flow. But but I'm like, you, you've got a vehicle that you have some equity in that's almost paid for, and you're starting the process. You will now be in debt for another five to six years if you structure this deal again. And I could tell that wasn't – it wasn't connecting. And, and, you know, and I've had conversations with people about their mortgages. You know, like, well, if I can afford the cash flow – it's all right. And Bo, you've had some communication with some family member and, and and actually I gotta give a shout out to the man because they never realized it until they took the Dave Ramsey course at their church. They had always made the assumption, well, if we can pay the monthly payment, that means we can afford it. So they had tons and tons and tons of debt debt they built up with all the furniture and the camper and the cars. Because they could service the debt, they thought they could afford it. Well, that's just that's not the way it works. You never truly own it if you're just looking at the payment. You do hope to come to a point in your life where you actually own the item. Mm-hmm. You don't want to get to where after you pay your vehicle off, you then go and trade it in to right. start the payment process all over again. I just I, There's nothing nothing drives better than a paid-for car. That's a fact. I mean, my car, I love Bluetooth streaming, the clock cars. I, dr- I borrowed a minivan when I went down to Disney, and it had this 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 blind spot detection system that right. when cars were going your left or right, it'd light up. And then if you turned your blinker on, it'd go crazy and wouldn't let you really <laughs> want to turn. And I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. But then I was like, 
My car doesn't have that. My car is paid for. <laughs> so, you know, it kind of it, it supersedes the ability, the need right. to have that. So, so you want to own your stuff, so, but don't pay attention to the payments. Pay attention to what the ultimate debt is as well. Um, unnecessary risk. We see people come in, and, and by the way, doctors, I'm, I'm talking to you if you're out there listening. We see people who make tremendous great incomes. They've got it pretty much figured out from the standpoint of an income that should be able to provide for them to save. They have disposable income to start saving. They just need to be patient and not take unnecessary risks. Come up with a, a good game plan and then follow that game plan through. Don't take unnecessary risk. Yep. Don't go, don't try to go invest in some endeavor just so you can make a quick buck. Um, I know it's a complete sidebar, but I just, in, in the last few days, I watched on ESPN 30 on 30 or whatever. Yep. They have these documentaries on Netflix now and it's, I'm sure it's on ESPN called Broke. Mm-hmm. That's what it was titled was Broke. And it was about all these professional athletes that have made $30 million plus who are completely broke now. And it made me think of a lot of the, the – I've worked with professional athletes, but it also made me think of doctors and others who are always taking on more risk than they should because they don't completely understand what they're getting into. So don't take on that unnecessary risk, especially if you're in your 50s and 60s and you've got a great uh, – a decent amount of money that you built up for financial independence – no reason to go try to start a new endeavor, especially if you've got the game won. Don't you know why, why risk it? Don't go. Don't, don't go invest your four hundred one k. I watch all these crazy shows, you know, where they're rehabbing restaurants and bars. I always cringe when I see they roll mom in or roll dad in, and he gave Junior his entire rollover IRA so he could start up a pub, mm. you know, in his college town or a restaurant. And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the definition of unnecessary risk. I mean, don't don't do that. You've won. If you've done the right thing with your kids, they don't need your four hundred one k or your IRA rollover to start their pub. I mean, that's a whole other thing. But um, and then kind of to close it out, be careful. Too good to be true. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, <laughs> we still it, it, when we talk to prospects, people are so polite. You guys who listen, especially when I talk to podcast prospect, y'all are so polite because. You'll ask me, you'll be like, so, um, how, how am I going to get statements or understand <laughs> where, you know, who do, who do I make the checks payable to? I always say, you're asking if I'm a crook. You want to know, you want to know if, um, what's to keep me from taking your money? That's what you're asking. And, and, and that's because Bernie Madoff scared a lot of people. Yep. I mean, he, and, and rightfully so. And, and what I find so interesting, and we've done a show on this, if you go back and look in our archives, if you're a premium member, is that you could go back. We did a show where we went and pulled his ADV off the SEC's website. So many red flags. Mm-hmm. So many red flags. But people get greedy. I mean, and you start making money, you know, it's too good to be true. And you're like, well, if I'm making money, it's got to be okay. But what you, what you didn't notice was who was generating the account statements? Bernie was. Who's who cashing were you the making, checks? Who were you making the checks payable to? Bernie's company. Who was holding the assets? Bernie's company. No Who was in charge out. of investing that money? Bernie. Ev- Bernie was running the whole thing. So, you know, if he wanted to show you had a million dollars, it was only worth $400,000, all you had to do was type in a million dollars. That's it. What makes it different when you're working with a financial person or even doing it yourself? Make sure that there's some accountability. It's just like all of our clients make their checks payable to Fidelity Investments or Charles Schwab because that's who we work with. You never write a check to Preston, Preston and Cleveland unless you're paying us directly for services. I mean, that, that, that's just for our fee. You don't, you, your investment money is being made payable to the custodians. You should also get monthly statements from that custodian. These are the things that will protect you. So just make sure you're very aware if it's too good to be true. It probably is. Um, last story. I, I just feel like I have so many stories to share. I had a cousin that was in the military. He's overseas. You know, done several tours in some of these really hard areas. Great, great guy. I remember when he contacted me originally to start investing. He had gone, and the army has this group of investors. I don't know, and it's not everybody because the army's actually been great for us. They they did a great job. We deal. We've worked with army families. When somebody unfortunately passes away with the Army, we're on their approved list for the life insurance proceeds. But they also have investment counselors that they've assigned. And I think he just had a bad apple because when Chuck came to me, 
one of the funds was a Russian fund. It was, a, it was specifically for Russia. Um, the other one was another technology fund. They were all so, I mean, getting into micro, you know, sectors of investing. I mean, this is not where you're, when you're starting a Roth IRA, you're looking for a good growth core holding. Right. You're not going to buy Russia. <laughs> I mean, that's just that it could be great that year, but it also could be disastrous. Not, not you, you don't want your introduction to investing to be Russia. Yeah. I mean, that's just not going to be a, a smooth ride for you. So just be careful if it's too good to be true, you know, because I think way that, and the reason I'm bringing that together is he showed him the performance of last year. It made 60%, you know, so you surely you want to make 60% this year too, but that's, that's not the way investing works, but be careful. And I hope you can see we have misses too. But the biggest thing, and we're all going to have misses, that's the, that's the great thing about being human is that none of us are perfect. But I would tell you, if you can figure out how to take those mistakes, turn them into positive things, you'll be in a better place. I mean, I don't have the stat in front of me. It would have been really cool and made, a, made us look a lot more prepared if I would have had. But I do know from reading it in the past, the majority of your entrepreneurs have missed ventures, mm-hmm. meaning they tried things, they failed but they got right back up there on their feet and they, they tried again and they were successful because they learned from their mistakes. So take those mistakes, put yourself on firmer ground. Don't make the same mistakes again because then it's bad, but give yourself some financial independence from those learning opportunities. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you guys, I appreciate Bo covering, like I said, last week, two weeks ago, so I could go be, spend time with the family down in Orlando. And, um, hopefully I know she, she, I can't remember if it was a he or she, but she closed it out saying she also, she was just kidding. But, um, hopefully we've won, won you back over where I can still hold the control microphone <laughs> here, but check us out money-guy.com. I'm your host, Brian Preston, Bo and Brian will be back in about two weeks. The money guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland wealth management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.